Welcome to the first episode of Upskill with EdTech, a production of ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. Upskill with EdTech explores how digital tools can be used to accelerate innovation in teaching and learning to support career advancement and lifelong learning for workers and job seekers. Today, we'll focus on the critical issue of digital equity and envision a world where people have equal access to education, training, employment, opportunity, modern culture itself through technology. We'll also focus on the digital divide, simply the disconnect between those who have access to technology and those who don't. I'm your host, Stephen Yadzinski, and we begin with a story from Laverne Moore, a resident of Navajo Nation outside Gallup, New Mexico. And my task at the time was to find a good job, and other than looking through the, the classified newspaper, because the, the, the funny thing about it is we didn't have a newspaper boy that could run out or a girl and deliver our newspapers. We would go to the store and sometimes I would just burn because all the stores ran out of newspapers to sell. They would sell out. So I was like, ah, oh. so then I had to go find other ways of looking for a good job. And again, it, it took me back to driving and commuting. The year was 2002. And without reliable internet in their home, Laverne and her family would drive long distances to community centers and libraries to get online, only to have difficulty with equipment, unreliable internet, and too many people waiting for their turn on the machines. The University of New Mexico campus in Gallup provided reliable computers and broadband, but use was limited to one hour per person and demand was high. I decided, you know what, I'm going to apply for school part-time just so that I can have access to the internet. <laughs> so that's what I did just so that I could be at the library uh, for as long as I want. And it was pretty neat. I mean, I learned how to use the internet here. People were here to help me learn how to use the internet because I, I wasn't tech savvy or, and it was kind of nerve wracking because, you know, here we are coming into this day of technology and everyone's talking about it, but you know, for myself, I really had to somehow teach myself and learn these technology tactics. So that's what I did. In 2014, Laverne and her family finally had reliable internet installed in their home for the first time. Just this past December, I received my bachelor's degree in computer science with IT. It was just such a good feeling. And I was like, wow. And having the internet at home really helped me pursue and keep up with my homework because there was so much research to do and there's just so much um, coding and everything and upgrading our internet speed had really, really helped. Even though it was a little bit more money to put down, we, it was worth it, but not everybody has that opportunity. Laverne's story is not unusual. Limited access, long travel, unique and creative solutions. Technology can make education, training, and employment opportunities accessible, with the promise of benefiting tens of millions of people, resulting not only in economic security for individuals and their families, but also growing the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, too many people are at risk of being left behind, simply because they cannot afford phone data plans, a laptop, or even internet in their home. To help us explore this issue more deeply, we'll hear stories from people working to close the digital divide in cities, in prisons, and throughout the United States. We turn our attention to Zuni, New Mexico, just 50 or so miles from where Laverne Moore lives. 
Zuni is the largest of New Mexico's 19 Native American pueblos, with about 12,000 members. Hayes Lewis is the former superintendent of Zuni Public Schools and is now the executive director of the Ushui College and Career Readiness Center. The Internet uh, is available throughout the community if you subscribe to it. Uh, CenturyLink has brought in fiber into the community, but as it gets dispersed, it's on copper. And so that degrades the uh, speed and power of the Internet as it approaches your home. And and sometimes uh, it's only a fraction of what it's rated as. Lewis's Career Readiness Center has good Internet access. It's typical on any given day or evening, even when it's not open, to find 15 or more cars parked outside using the Wi-Fi signal. According to a recent community survey there, the lack of good Internet has far-reaching implications. And they're doing their homework, they're trying to upload papers and so forth. But not only that, in our larger community, the lack of Internet and connectivity is really a health and safety issue as well. In our survey, Recently, uh, we were informed by the EMTs, the emergency medical personnel and the police, that many times they can't upload documents or forms while they're on the scene, uh, maybe an accident or things like that, because of lack of Internet. So it crosses a a large spectrum of uh, activities that we have in our community and needs. While it's fairly strong if you subscribe to it, it gets weaker as you get into the outlying areas of our community and to the point of maybe no Internet access in in portions of our community. Uh, So that's kind of the the lay of the land as it looks in our community. But I know in other tribal communities, at least two-thirds of reservation-based residents do not have adequate Internet, and they're getting further and further behind in terms of this so-called digital divide. Zuni's main Internet provider, CenturyLink, charges residents at least $100 a month. Lewis says that's beyond the means of most community members many of whom are artisans and jewelry makers. While the schools have fairly strong Internet access and have the capability of providing uh, different kinds of tools to access the the Internet for uh, lessons and things like that, that disappears when many of the students go home because of the uh, lack of Internet connectivity at their home or no Internet. And so that becomes a homework gap. They, They can't do anything there or... On the other hand, they may not have computers or laptops or anything like that in order to access the Internet if they have it. So it's a a multi-dimensional issue and problem, the challenges that face uh, young students. Of course, rural areas are not the only places where digital access is a problem. But at a very base level, you have one in four Americans, almost 62 million of them, who do not have access to the Internet, just the Internet, in their homes on a daily basis. Chika Agu is a principal with McChrystal Group and former CEO of Everyone On, a national nonprofit focused on bringing the Internet to everyone, everywhere in the country. About 12 million of those people who can't get online live in rural areas, but 50 million of them live in cities like Chicago and New York. These are people who can't apply for jobs. These are kids who can't do their homework. These are seniors in high school who can't apply for college. And uh, the thing that we see in today's technological age is that no matter what the issue is that you care about, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, whether it's job access, all of them now go through the Internet. So you've got to make sure that people are connected to the Internet if they're going to be connected to the other parts of the American dream that uh, are why people come here and live here and stay here. Agu's organization has worked with hundreds of people around the country, including a woman from Macon, Georgia, named Daryl Bradley, when she was a junior in high school. 
She's a woman who I would call of a high ambition, but low means. And so every day she would go to school and around 1.30 in the afternoon, she would leave school. And because she didn't have internet at home, she would get on a bus and take it to the nearest McDonald's. She would go in that McDonald's, buy something off the dollar menu and use the free Wi-Fi to do homework on her mobile phone until they kicked her out. Then she would go and get on another bus and take that bus to the next nearest McDonald's and she would repeat that process. And she would do this at times and repeat this process until one o'clock in the morning just to do her homework. And just very simply in the United States of America, no child should have to do that to do their homework. Agu says another man his group worked with was unemployed in Chicago and had a family to support. With no internet in his home, he went every morning to the public library. He would get in the library and he would apply to as many jobs as he could in one hour because that was the limit that you could be on a computer in a public library in Chicago. Then he would leave because he couldn't be, be on the computer for the rest of the day. And he would leave with a knot in his stomach because he said, my God, I might miss the email for the job that could put food on my family's table and change the course of our lives. So, again, when we think about the Internet, it's not simply about Netflix and Facebook, but it's really about American opportunity. There's another often ignored demographic who face unique and significant barriers to accessing the Internet and technology. These are the more than 2 million individuals incarcerated in the United States, who when released must not only reintegrate into their communities, but also navigate the digital age. Traditionally, corrections officials have prohibited access beyond email, which can be closely monitored. That is slowly changing, and more inmates are gaining access to educational opportunities through technology. One of those student inmates is Stephen Kaplan. Starting when he was 16 years old, Kaplan spent eight years in a youth corrections facility. Homeschooled his entire life, Kaplan was raised by a mother with serious health problems. By the time he entered the correctional facility, he'd fallen far behind in high school credits. He started taking classes and quickly discovered that he was really good at school. He liked it. Uh, having grown up in a very restricted house, not having really seen much life, I was like, oh, wow, this exists. This is amazing. And so I started taking that opportunity. And a little bit before I was actually done with all my high school credits, I got an opportunity to be part of the first couple of waves uh, in online higher education. Using an Oregon administrative rule, the state made it possible in 2010 for incarcerated individuals to access online networks for educational and vocational purposes. Prior to that, no one in a correctional facility could get online. At first, Kaplan's high school education was supported by learning materials accessed only through closed networks. He earned his diploma in only two years, and through this new program was provided closely monitored internet access, allowing him to start taking online classes through Portland Community College. And I end up graduating with my associate's degree with the highest honors. And I found a program through Portland State University. And it was a program online in business, management, and leadership. And it was targeted towards non-traditional students. He finished his bachelor's degree in management, graduating summa cum laude in 2017. Next, he began working towards his master's degree. Kaplan has since been released and is continuing his studies while working as a contractor with Portland State University. Kaplan says things could have been different for him were it not for the education he received. 
I would be struggling and I would be alone. And that's a hard feeling for anybody is that you come out of a place, especially after eight years, and you go, I've never used a smartphone. Like, I don't, these didn't exist when I was in. Like, I'd never seen one of these. And you, you do banking online. Like, who does that? Like, oh my gosh. Inmates who don't have the same opportunities as Kaplan or didn't take advantage of them have a more difficult time. And they fall back into whether it's drugs or drinking or they return to family, which is sometimes what gets people in bad situations in the beginning. And it's because of desperation. They didn't have the skills to go out there and get a good job or sell themselves. They didn't have the refinement that education gives you on just keep going, you know. Kaplan accessed educational content using a specially configured and secure server. It was made available through a partnership between Oregon Youth Authority, the State of Oregon's Juvenile Corrections Agency, and World Possible. That's a nonprofit dedicated to expanding access to education throughout the world where Internet and computers are not available. Frank Martin spent years working with the Oregon Youth Authority before joining World Possible. When I was a parole officer, I kept the young people focused on their education and that they could do better and sort of like being their uncle in some ways, trying to persuade them to continue uh, for a better life. And part of that is through education. What I saw at the correctional facilities was not enough time for access to computers or also the content. And a lot of the administrators had nightmare scenarios of what happens when someone goes and access the Internet in the wrong way. What I discovered is having closed systems allowed the access to be focused on education content, attaining college uh, credentials, you know, attaining um, the ability to actually learn how to code, uh, you know, being a writer, having an access to writing materials and reading. I saw that it needed to expand uh, with digital content, digital access, learning applications and learning coding. And a lot of those areas were off limits. So a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. It was uh, one of those areas that was in fear of a administrator, literally, because of they may lose their job if, you know, somebody hacks out or does something negative. Martin's work on the policy change in Oregon, allowing young people to access online educational materials, opened the door for state funding on par with the amounts primary and secondary institutions receive for education. That funding enabled him and his team to set up labs and create layers of technology, allowing people like Kaplan to access educational materials without having to get online. And I often say that to states that I work with now uh, through my position with World Possible, you know, how are you addressing the young people that are in your system that are done with high school? I just share with them ideas so they can leverage their state funding to do higher education programming. One of the barriers Martin and his team faced rolling out the program was getting access to computers suitable for use inside a correctional facility. This presented another opportunity to train the young people through the program. We didn't have actually a way of manufacturing them, so we had the young people actually help us put the computers together. The kids, or I should say young people, removed the cameras, they put in the OS, you know, they uh, disabled the DVD drive. The young people literally built the computers that they were going to use. That type of spirit continued even to this day right now where some of the young people in the Tillamook facility are building uh, computers. It's the, quote-unquote, the OYA Geek Squad where you have young people in a correctional facility 
working on 300 computers that are going to be deployed throughout the state. Martin is well aware some people may be uncomfortable with the idea of using taxpayer money to educate people serving prison sentences. But for him, it's not only a social justice issue. It's common sense. Incarcerating people is expensive, and U.S. recidivism rates are high. The more job and life skills people have when they leave prison, the less likely they are to return to incarceration. And so when someone leaves a correctional facility, you have to make sure that they have the right awareness and tools for making it in in the community. Before, a lot of young people didn't have access to technology. And can you imagine going out and you've only spent a few hours uh, at minimum on the laptop or on the Internet or, you know, being able to use applications? That's one less stressor if you're able to cover that before they leave that they have to worry about and put them on an even keel for competition when they get into the workplace. Part of what we try to do is prepare them to be, you know, a positive individual in their community through employment and also adjusting and contributing. And I think that's, that's vital. Today, half a million students around the world access open educational resources through World Possible and its many partners. That's just one solution to tackling digital inequity. But Chike Agu says it's more than just getting online or getting the information that lives online. Again, if you want to think about it like a three-legged stool, you have affordable internet service, which is really where everyone on started our work. It's also about having affordable and quality hardware. Again, a computer, a tablet, whatever fits for that person's life. And lastly, digital literacy training so that people know how to use the first two. All three of those are critical for full digital inclusion. And again, we know the Internet piece is generally a a, a cost barrier is what keeps people offline. Hardware uh, is a similar barrier. In fact, in some ways, it's even harder to solve because we did a lot of work with families who are in public housing. The average family in public housing makes less than $14,000 a year. If you divide that up, that's about uh, a little over $1,000 a month. Even for a cheap refurbished computer that we can help a family get, about $150 to $250, I'm asking them to spend 20% of their monthly income on that single purchase, which is a huge barrier for a lot of families. Agu says beyond these challenges is a need for basic digital literacy. When we think about digital literacy, again, I think about it almost like a three-tiered pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid is very basic digital literacy, which is still really important. How do I turn on and turn off my device? How do I use Microsoft Office, use my browser, my email? The basics of just being a digital citizen, a digital native. There's a middle layer, which is how do I use the Internet to actually increase the quality of my life? How how do I use it to apply for jobs, public benefits, do automatic bill pay, (laughs) things like that, which most of us do as a part of a uh, of our daily lives. And we don't even think about it. But for a family, that that could be a critical, critical financial savings. And then lastly, at the top of the pyramid is how do I use the Internet to actually increase my skills? increase my own capacity so that I can change my life. I think about someone getting an online certificate or credential that helps them get a better job. How do we use the internet to get those truly next level digital skills that are really going to be transformative, particularly in many of the low income and underserved communities that we did work in. So all three legs of that stool are really important. And when we think about digital inclusion, we have to make sure that we don't neglect one of those legs. Agu explains to successfully engage with online learning, people must have fairly well-developed digital skills. That's where we need to get everyone. And for anyone who's thinking about trying to upskill someone, you always have to think about, one, on what side of the digital divide are they on? 
Do they have access to internet? Do they have access to hardware? And most importantly, do they have the skills to use them? Because again, that's what's going to allow them to enter into uh, that digital education fully equipped. You know, I started my career as an educator. Uh, I, I taught in New York City and I've taught abroad. And when you think about yourself as a teacher, one of the first questions you ask your student is where are they starting from? What do they know? What do they not know? What's been their previous experience or lack of experience with whatever it is I'm trying to teach them? And that's a critical question for anyone trying to impart skills digitally, particularly if they come from an underserved population. In Zuni, the community is launching a project with MuralNet, MuralNet is a nonprofit based in Oakland, California, made up of people working in high tech, committed to helping bridge the digital divide and the resulting homework gap in rural tribal communities. We'll be mounting a, an omnidirectional antenna on top of our building uh, using their technology with a small base station uh, with a radius of about 5 to 10 miles, and that should cover the village. And we're going to do a survey to see what the strength of the signal is in various households that we've identified uh, in the outlying areas. If that doesn't work uh, or if it's not strong enough, then we have plans for a secondary base station located on a, on a higher location. It doesn't really depend on the height of the antenna so much because the technology they're using really is adaptable to uh, mostly the kind of terrain that we have. It's not like uh, the FM signal where a mountain gets in the way, you lose the signal. It goes right through the mountain. So we're working on that, and uh, we have 30 households uh, set up as a test site. In addition to bringing the infrastructure and the equipment to our community, they will also be providing uh, equipment for in-home use, which includes modems, uh, routers, plugs, SIM cards, and these are free of charge. All this will be at no cost to the tribe or its members. It'll, it'll have a variety of impacts. First of all, it would be a motivating factor to influence the students and the parents to really uh, take care of business in terms of doing the homework and so forth. But it also opens up other opportunities online to other learning opportunities and other connections that they don't have right now. Lewis says it will also bring more access to career readiness sites and other resources, not just for high school students, but for the whole community. Also, it's an opportunity for the parents and other the artisans to also access markets that they don't have access to right now, regionally, globally, to sell their products. And there's, there's a, a learning thing that goes on right there because most of the, the product is developed in the household near, to, near where the students are, and many of the students also take part in uh, some portion of the manufacturing of some of those items, uh, just like we did when we were kids. And if they can see their parents and even teach their parents about how to use the Internet uh, more effectively as a marketing tool and a sales skill, then there's a whole uh, range of opportunities for learning and empowerment there that really gets to the point of self-determination and sovereignty in so many ways. For Stephen Kaplan, shrinking that digital gap helped make the transition back into his community easier. It allowed him to find work related to the degrees he earned while incarcerated. During our interview... Kaplan shared a bit about his work today. Currently, I do contract work for Portland State University, and I'm actually getting gaining some really great skills and helping them develop and build some online uh, courses, course content. But it's also kind of cool because I've been able to pass along some of that online knowledge that I've gotten because I've taken all my classes online. And so some instructors have never done online classes, and they 
they're like, well, I don't, I don't know how to present this information. And so it's kind of nice to be able to be like, well, this is how people look at these classes and they, they want content presented in this way. And I also um, have a contract starting in a couple of weeks to help a nonprofit organization develop their cost accounting system. And so I'll be working with some databases and developing that, which are actually all skills that I was able to learn while I was inside. Once he completes his master's degree, Kaplan hopes to work in a corporate environment where he can gain experience and build his skills. And then in the end, I'd like to take that and apply it more in a sustainable business, whether that's starting my own or pairing with some of these nonprofits, and see how we can make a bigger impact uh, in the world. Um, through my experiences of incarceration, I realized that there are a lot of amazing people and organizations trying to make a change. And uh, I would like to be able to give back to that because of the opportunities I received from other people's, you know, tenacity in the, in the cause or what I, I view as the cause. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We've shared stories that highlight the problem of digital inequity and how it affects real people's lives. But we also presented solutions for closing that digital divide. Our next episode will share practical information about education and workforce technologies that foster connections to training, employment, opportunities, and fulfilling careers. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as our executive producer, Megan Kamrick. We would also like to thank the amazing production team at ISTE, including Chief Learning Officer Joseph South, Joan Lee, Brandon Olszewski, and Umber Zuberi. ISTE inspires educators worldwide to use technology to innovate teaching and learning, accelerate good practice, and solve tough problems in education by providing community, knowledge, and the ISTE standards, a framework for rethinking education and empowering learners. This podcast is funded through the generous support of Walmart. I'm Stephen Yedzinski. Thank you for listening.